I also appreciate you being here this afternoon. I know it's a beautiful day out there. There are a lot of places that you could be other than in this room right now. And I know that several of you, seeing as how it's 2.15, more than likely at either 5, 5.30 or 6, probably somewhere around 6, we'll be doing this again at your home congregation. So I know that, uh, that you're making this an extra service for today, and that also, I, I very much appreciate that. that. Anybody that's preached will tell you that it's a lot more fun to preach when there's people as opposed to empty pews. I mean, the pews are nice, they're padded, they're rather attractive, and they're semi-comfortable, but not too comfortable because they don't want you going to sleep, but they'll do all right. But the problem is when you're up here, that pew right there gives you no feedback at all, whereas some of you are going to go, or something, and I at least can get an idea. You know, you know, you men, have you noticed how your wife knows when you do that? She can say something, you can turn around, and she'll say, don't roll your eyes. How do they know? How do they know? I never have figured that one out. You know, and talking about that button that's, uh, that's up here, that kind of, y'all probably sure y'all have heard the story of the preacher that normally put a throat lozenge in his mouth and he knew that when it was dissolved it was time to quit and one morning he went on and on and, you know, realized he had put a button in his mouth instead. But I liked the one better where the fellow went to try out. He went to try out at this congregation and he was a little older than what most, you know, preachers nowadays, you know, nowadays, in fact, I remember one time I went to talk to these people when I was 39 years old and they told me, well, you're a little older than what we're looking for. I thought, boy, are we in trouble in the brotherhood. But that's another story. But the point is that this guy went and tried out. And man, he preached Sunday morning for 20 minutes. Excellent sermon. Hushed and sat down. People liked that. He got up that night, preached for 20 minutes, and just sat down and had an excellent sermon. And boy, the brothers and sisters, they went to the elders and they said, fellas, this is the guy. 20 minutes. Man, that's what we've been looking for. That's exactly what we need. So they called him and offered him the job, and he accepted. Several weeks later, when it was time for him to come and begin, he came, and that first Sunday he got up and he preached for five minutes and sat down. And the folks thought, hmm, well, that's, that's not bad. You know, I mean, people at Grant Street are always telling me, if I preach under 20 minutes, it was a good sermon. doesn't matter what I said. That's just, you know, just the way it is. But, you know, they said, well, what, he got up that night, five minutes. Well... The next Sunday, he managed to, he, he got up and, and he preached for 10 minutes. And they thought, well, what happened to that 20-minute guy that was so good on that day he tried out? Well, they didn't say much, you know, kind of whispering. And then the next Sunday, he got up and he spoke for an hour. Well, they said, that's it. That, some, of the, some of the brethren went to the elders and said, look, you guys got to do something. Now, he came in with two 20-minute excellent sermons. And then he moves in t into town five minutes, ten minutes, and an hour. Give us a break. Go talk to him. So they did that Sunday afternoon. They call him in and they said, Brother, you know, we don't understand. You know, you, I mean, when you tried out and we hired you, you know, you had two good 20 minute sermons and, you know, five, ten, and an hour. He says, I, I apologize. He said, I'll explain it at the evening service. So that evening, Sunday night, everybody's there, and he says, Brethren, I feel the need to explain what has happened. He said, when, you, when I came and tried out, that's my typical sermon, about 20 minutes. 
That's what I usually do. He said, but just a day or two before I moved here, he said, I had some serious dental work done, got a whole new set of brand new dentures, and he said, I'm going to be honest with you. My mouth was hurting so bad that first Sunday, five minutes was all I could preach. He said, it got better. But last week, he said, they were still sore. My gums were, and he said, those new dentures were still bothering me. He said, so I got ten minutes. He said, this morning, I picked up my wife's dentures by mistake. But uh, anyway... See, I can say those things because my wife is three hours away in North Alabama, and you don't know my phone number. <clears throat> so, anyway, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 through 31. He who waits on the Lord can mount up with wings like an eagle. I don't know how many of you here are football fans or baseball fans, basically just college sports fans, but I'm assuming there's a few. And, you know, typically in the southeast, as you are well aware, as anyone across this great land of ours from sea to shining sea knows, the SEC is the strongest football conference in the country, bar none, always, well, I won't say always, but nearly always has been, and will probably be that way for many years to come. And no, I'm not prejudiced at all. I just That's just a fact. You know, that's just the way it is. Up and down the line, that's why we never win the national championship anymore. We kill each other. Oh, you know, Alabama, Auburn's going to kill Alabama or vice versa or Tennessee. or So what I thought I'd do this afternoon for a few minutes is talk about the Crimson Tide, War Eagle, and the Volunteers. And uh, hopefully it'll make some sense by the time we get through. Now I heard, I'll give, I, I don't normally give credit where credit is due, but I will this time just in case because I have since been told that not the way I do it, but this sermon, somebody has written a book and this sermon is in it. I haven't seen the book, but I did hear uh, Wayne Dunaway when I was emceeing a Heritage Christian University fundraising dinner a few years ago in Decatur, and he was our speaker. And among other things, he just kind of did about a two-minute real quickie on, and, and I told the folks then that anybody from Grant Street within a month was going to hear that in an expanded form. So I made a sermon out of it, and so if you've heard this before from somebody else, I promise that's all I got, but I will give credit to him in case you know him where credit is due. But the point is, I know in Alabama, and I grew up, as I mentioned this morning, in Tennessee, and I know that Neyland Stadium in Knoxville, Tennessee, for about, well, I don't know, how many, you get seven home games, typically, six, seven, eight home games. In the fall, this, one, this coming fall, from about September to the end of November, there will be weekends in Knoxville where there now, since they've expanded it several years ago, will be more than 100,000 primarily orange-clad fanatic people screaming at the top of their lungs, some of them so high in the nosebleed section that it would scare me just to climb the steps up there in Knoxville. Why? Because we love our volunteers. That's why. You know, now I realize you've got Tennessee Tech, and I don't know what they're called, or I might could have fixed, changed this, but I don't think so. But I bet even here in Cookville, even with your own university, there are people that probably put orange on in the fall and will be pulling for old Phil Fulmer to vastly improve upon what has happened in the last year or so. That's because that's what we do. And in Alabama... You ain't got nothing on them folks in Alabama. 
I don't know if you, y'all probably didn't read about it, but, you know, University of Alabama has hired him a new football coach. And, I mean, that's big news. You know, Saban is going to, he's going to be the greatest thing since, well, since Gene Stallings, but I doubt it. But he, he's going to be, he's going to pull us back to, to, you know, that great position where we belong. And just a couple of weekends ago, they had their annual spring A-Day game, a scrimmage. 93,000 people from all over were at Bryant-Denny Stadium in Tuscaloosa to watch a scrimmage. And the only reason there wasn't 115,000 is because they couldn't get in. Now, that's Alabama football. And somewhere around the end of November, 1st of December on a Saturday, when Alabama and Auburn get together, I mean, you know, it's, it's ridiculously huge. You know, friendships are strained sometimes. It's crazy. I mean, people were crazy down there. That's just the way it is. And, and, of course, up here, you know, everybody loves the Tennessee Volunteers. But here's the point. Here's the point I want to make. Every Christian, every Christian loves the Crimson Tide. Every Christian has a strong desire to be a war eagle. And, of course, every child of God is a volunteer. When you go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And Colossians chapter 1, verse 14 basically says the same thing. When we think about it, in fact, we just sang a song this morning that that second verse had the line in it, Crimson Tide. That's the only thing Alabama fans have to their credit. They say, well, at least we can find ourselves in the songbook at church. You Auburn people can't do that. But that's, that, you know, we, we sang about the Crimson Tide. And that crimson tide that flowed from the side of the Son of God at Calvary, it is in the free-flowing fountain of the blood of Christ that you and I find forgiveness and redemption. Apart from that crimson tide, there would be no possibility of heaven. There would be no redemption from the, the, the servitude and slavery of sin and Satan. There would be no salvation. We would have no opportunity to be washed clean, to be given a brand new start. Because it's the blood of Christ that makes that possible. And I don't know anyone that would argue that. Up and down the line in, in mainstream religion today, at least in that mainstream religion that claims to follow Jesus Christ, in the old, most of the denominational world, if you should ask, how does a person receive forgiveness? How does a person find redemption? Most people ultimately will get to, well, it's in the blood of Christ. Now, how you access that blood, you may get a lot of different answers, but the answer is going to invariably be we are forgiven by the life-giving blood of Christ that was shed on Golgotha's brow that day at Calvary on the cross. That's how we're saved, and that's exactly right. And without that blood, the Hebrew writer says, there is no remission. And it's not the blood of bulls and goats. Peter makes that abundantly clear. We were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold or, or the sacrifices of animals or anything else. We were redeemed by the incorruptible blood of the only begotten Son of God. And without that blood, we have no hope. But because of that sacrifice, we not only can live in hope, but as we just referenced briefly this morning from Romans 8, we can be more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
God has called us to an existence far beyond anything that humanity can devise. It's called living for Him through the power of His Word as it shares with us the redemptive nature of the blood of the only begotten Son of God. That can only be found in Christ. That blood is shed in His death. And as I mentioned this morning, I get into the death where the blood was shed. As many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into His death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should rise to walk in newness of life. For if we've been together in the likeness of His death, we shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Romans 6, 3-5. through We are buried with Him by baptism into death. And in John 19, as He, realizing all had been fulfilled, said, I'm thirsty. And then as we read, as we put together all the accounts that discuss the crucifixion, He said, it is finished. And Father, into Your hands I commend my spirit. And He died. And just to make sure, that Roman soldier took that spear and thrust it into his side, and when he withdrew that weapon, there came forth from the wound blood mingled with water. In his death, the life-giving, redemptive blood was shed, the crimson tide. And if I don't get into that death, I don't have a chance, because there is no power on earth that can forgive sin. Only from heaven does the power emanate that has the ability and the efficacy to wash away my sin and, in fact, the sins of the whole world. Second John, or First John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He died for us all, but he died for me. It's very personal, and yet it's universal. And unless I avail myself of that blood by following in the commands of the Father, as outlined in the last will and testament of His only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ. Unless I follow that will and access that blood, the blood has not been applied to my life. He said, well, that can't be right. Oh, yeah. It's conditional. Say, no, God loves everybody. Yes, He does. In fact, the only reason that we have a crimson tide in which we can be washed is because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And everybody can tell you that's John 3.16. God commended His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5, around verses 6-8. through 8. There's no question. God loves the world. That's the largest number. That's all of us. But He also makes it very, very clear that when he offers that grace, and in fact, Titus, Paul, in writing that letter to Titus, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking forward to that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem unto himself a peculiar people, and the peculiarity of the people of God is that we are zealous or eager 
for good works. And that's peculiar, not just in today's world. That's always been peculiar. Most people are in it for themselves. The child of God is in it for God. And it alters his entire existence. That's peculiar. That's why Jesus told his disciples, hey, the world's going to hate you. You know how I know that? Because the world hates me. But then he said, don't worry about it. I've overcome the world. And the implication is, you can too, if you'll follow my footsteps. And Peter told us that he left us those footsteps for the express purpose of us walking in them. Second Peter 2, verse 21. Oh, that grace has appeared to all men, but the truth of the matter is, not all men have availed themselves of its power. Because God has never, from the Garden of Eden to this day, until the Lord returns, he has, is not, and never will alter a man's will against his choices. He will not reach down and grab me by the heart and say, Watkins, you're going to be one of mine and I'm taking you home to heaven. No, no, no. God never has operated that way. And he never will. He sent his son to die. What more did he need to do? And all he asks is that I just pay attention to what he has to say and do his will. Matthew 7, verse 21. He loves us all. And salvation and redemption in the crimson tide is available to us all. But only those who do the will of the Father will get the promise. It's always been that way. We could go back and talk about the city of Jericho. He told them, march and blow and scream and yell, and the wall will fall. None of that made the wall fall. But the reason the wall fell is because God said, do this, and they did it. Naaman was told, dip seven times in the Jordan River and your leprosy will go away. He did. His leprosy went away. Not because the Jordan River has any power. It's just water, just like water in the Cumberland, the Caney Fork, whatever. It doesn't matter. Water is water. There is no holy water. I don't care what people say. Now, the Jordan River didn't heal any lepers that I know of other than Naaman. Why did it work for him? Because God said so, and he did it. What happened when he obeyed? He got the gift. He got the promise. What happened when the children of Israel obeyed? They got the promise. What about the folks in the wilderness when they got bit by the poisonous snakes? They looked at the brass snake on the pole. They were healed. What happened? They obeyed, and they got the promise. God says, if you want to be pleasing to me, you must have faith, because he that is coming to me must be, he is a diligent, he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I can't please God without faith, and faith involves a diligent effort on my part. And the whole 11th chapter, that's verse 6, the whole 11th chapter of Hebrews makes it abundantly clear. By faith, Abel offered. By faith, Noah prepared. By faith, Moses chose. By faith, Abraham left. By faith, Gideon. By faith, the children of Israel. By faith, every time it's followed by an action verb. Why? Because faith is doing what God says. And when I do, I get the gift. God says, my grace has appeared to all men, and that grace is powerful enough to save us all. In fact, it is in that grace that you are saved. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, but that grace is received by faith. Don't receive it, you don't get it. The crimson tide, the power to wash away my sins, made possible by the love of God. There is a fountain filled with blood. Drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood 
lose all their guilty stains. Ever since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Now, there's no question. Every Christian loves the crimson tide, but then every child of God desires to be that war eagle. We envision eagles as great majestic birds, and they do. They're amazing. It's the symbol of our country. It just, it just depicts all kinds of things. Of course, we try not to think about that in reality. An eagle is a glorified vulture that feeds on carrion, but we won't talk about that. The eagle is a majestic, beautiful bird. Ben Franklin wanted to make the national bird the turkey. Didn't fly for whatever reason, but probably turkeys are pretty sharp too if you ever tried to hunt one. But the eagle, I mean, you go to the zoo and you see them, or if you've been fortunate, you know, if you go over to northwest Tennessee and, you know, over there and uh, and get up there around uh, Ripley. And I never can think of the name of that lake that was created by the 1840 earthquake that backed the Mississippi River up. But anyway, that went up there where all the eagles nest. In fact, when we lived down in Tampa, Florida, in the Tampa area, I'll think of it about the time I'm through preaching when I'm not trying to think of it. I did this the last time I said this, too. But anyway, when we were down living around Tampa, we were out on this little reservoir one day, and there was this beautiful bald eagle just kind of circling right above us. Absolutely gorgeous birds. And they can fly to amazing heights. I mean, it's astounding how high up in the heavens that they can get. And that, that's what we want to be. We want to be these majestic beings that soar above life. And God can do that for us. If we will depend upon Him, if we will gain our strength from the Father, if we will realize, as Paul did, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, we can, in fact, soar on wings like eagles. But we're not just eagles. No, 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 we're not just eagles. We must be war eagles. Because the child of God is beyond a shadow of a doubt engaged in warfare. And that warfare is against the enemy. And the enemy is not humanity. The enemy is not someone in this life. You therefore, my son, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses. Commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. We are soldiers in the army of God. Jesus Christ is our general our captain, our leader, and we follow him, and we make war against the principalities and the powers of darkness. We fight not against flesh and blood, but against a much more important, a much more devious and deceitful enemy. No, 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 we fight against that enemy that can destroy all of mankind and can cause us to find ourselves in hell for eternity. We fight against Satan, and we fight against his message, which is false teaching. We don't fight the teacher. We fight the teaching. We fight the ultimate source. Paul talked about that in Ephesians 6 when he gave us the weapons, the, the armor, if you will, of the Christian soldier, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It is that with which we fight. 
And this word is not designed to tear apart human life. This word is designed to discern in the heart of a man good from evil and to just separate even body and spirit so that someone can understand what God needs him to do for him to be able to turn and to find salvation in the arms of a gracious, long-suffering, loving, patient God. But we are not just eagles, we are war eagles. And as soldiers, as war eagles in the army of God, we do soar above the finite. We soar above the entanglements of this life that can so easily distract us from what our real purpose is. All too often I'm afraid that's what happens. We get caught up in our church life worrying about buildings and utility bills and paint and, and pews and songbooks and all those things are critical. They're all important, but they're tools. Our task as the church is, as God put it through Paul, to make known the manifold or multifaceted or many-sided wisdom of God to the world. Now, a building and the paint and the books and the pews, they all contribute. But if that's what engrosses our thinking, we're off whack. And we're not soaring above those temporary entanglements. We're getting caught up. And Satan is smarter than we typically give him credit for being. And he can even take faithful people and get us so involved in things that do not produce Christians, that do not directly relate to saving the lost, that we get sidetracked and pat ourselves on the back thinking we're doing the Lord's business. When in reality, the only thing the Lord gave us business to do is to seek and save the lost. There's nothing else I have business doing. And I build one and we build one another up, Ephesians 4, for the express purpose of seeking and saving the lost. If it doesn't point to evangelism, I need to stop it. And if my congregation has programs that are in place that cannot directly relate to saving a lost soul, then they need to either be dropped or they need to be tweaked but they need to be headed up by some man who can see the connection between saving the lost and painting the building. If I can't make that connection, then let the building go until I can. I need to be able to figure out what I'm here for. And we sometimes get caught up in those entanglements, and it is a great distraction. God encourages us to set your minds on things above, not on things of the earth. There's problems here, there's no, but we need to stay focused where Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. War eagles, without a doubt. From every stormy wind that blows, from every swelling tide of woes, there is a calm, a sure retreat. Tis found beneath the mercy seat. There is a place where Jesus sheds the oil of gladness on our heads, a place besides all more sweet. It is the blood-bought mercy seat. There is a scene where spirits blend, where friend holds fellowship with friend. Though sundered far by faith they meet around one common mercy seat. And there, there on eagles' wings we soar, and sin and sense seem all no more, and heaven comes down our souls to greet, and glory crowns the mercy seat. No doubt about it, Christians love the crimson tide. Surely all of us aspire to be war eagles, but then every last one of us in the army of God is a volunteer. There is no draft in the army of the Lord. We are drawn to him, 
He doesn't force us in. He does. There's no conscription. There's no Shanghai and somebody on the docks and throwing them in the boat. There's none of that. No, we are drawn to God by His unbelievable offering of His only begotten Son on that cross all those years ago. John chapter 3, when Jesus, you remember that evening in Palestine, Nicodemus, a member of the council apparently, had come to Jesus by night. Why? We don't know. It doesn't matter. He came to Jesus, and he and Jesus had a conversation there in John 3. And in verses 14 and 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In John chapter 12, verse 32, and, if, and I... If I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. It's a volunteer army. It's my choice. You say, man, that's power. Yes, it is. God said in the very beginning, let us make man in our image. In the image of God, he made them male and female. He created them. And one of the great aspects of being made in the image of God is I have a choice. I don't operate on instinct. I operate from a reasonable perspective for the most part, some more than others, but I have freedom to choose. Sadly, even Christ realized most people choose the broad way that leads to destruction, while very few, comparatively speaking, choose the difficult way that leads to life, Matthew seven thirteen and 14. But the choice is mine. Even Jesus Christ, when on this planet, did not force people to follow him. He gave them choices. And as we noted this morning, when they chose even in large numbers to turn and walk away, he did not, by the power of God, stop them. He let them walk. The prodigal son left home. The father, who represents God, did not stop him. He never has. And he didn't make him come home either. It was the boy's choice, that young man's choice. That's the way it's always worked. I must be drawn by the love of God in the great sacrifice of his son. And if that doesn't draw my heart to come near to the Father and instill in me a desire to know the will of God in this book, then folks, there's nothing I can say. There's nothing any man can say. There's nothing any group of men or women can say. It's the gospel that has the power to save, Romans 1.16. Not the messenger, but the message. Paul, even that great inspired apostle Paul, understood that. He planted, Apollos watered, but he said God gives the increase. The choice is mine. It's a volunteer army. Arise, the master calls for thee. The harvest days are here. No longer sit with folded hands, but gather far and near. The noble ranks of volunteers are daily growing everywhere, but still there's work for millions more than for the field prepare. The message bear to distant lands beyond the rolling sea. Go tell them of a Savior's love, the Lamb of Calvary. Arise, the Master calls for thee. Salvation full and free proclaim till every kindred, tribe, and tongue exalt the Savior's name. When I am washed in the crimson tide and I am strengthened by the power of God to become a war eagle, at that point I will readily volunteer for service in the kingdom, in the vineyard of the Lord.
Uh, there's no question about it. We all love the Crimson Tide, the War Eagles, and the Volunteers. And if anyone needs to respond to the invitation of Christ this afternoon, you have that opportunity right now while we stand and sing.